Welcome to Sidebar, the NJSBA's very own podcast. I'm your host, Kate Coscarelli. So Sidebar is a special feature of the NJSBA that gives me a chance to chat with some of the newsmakers and interesting people who call the association their professional home. Today, I'm excited to tell you that my guest is Sean LaTourette. He is a guy with a lot on his plate. He is chief of staff at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. He is the chair of the LGBT rights section for the State Bar, and he is father to eight-and-a-half-year-old twins. So La Tourette is um, a super interesting guy. He put himself through college and law school. He's worked at some of the nation's biggest white shoe firms as well as environmental law boutiques. He was director of of the environmental law department at Gibbons immediately prior to entering public service. So I have called this episode the Possibility Edition because as something Sean said about his entree into the legal world and what it meant to him. So he sat down, he came to the Law Center and sat down recently with me for a wide-ranging conversation about his path to the law via vocation, um, Votech High School, which opened a door of possibility for him. He spoke about finding professional mentors, his work in environmental law, and what it means today to be on the policy-making side of things. He talked about the community and inspiration he found in getting involved with the State Bar's LGBT rights section after coming out as a gay man and the outreach program he hopes to launch in the year ahead. He also shared some really interesting insights about what it means to be a high-performing professional and parent in our society and the steps that need to come next. So let's get started. Here we go. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for driving up from Trenton to join me today. It is my pleasure. Good. So let's just jump in. And why don't you tell me a little bit about your path to the legal profession? Ooh, my path to the legal profession. Um, It was a not expected one. I didn't grow up in a a household where I thought, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to be a doctor. What did your really, folks do? They weren't lawyers and doctors? No, no, no. My dad was a Marine. Okay. Um, turned maintenance man. Um, and he always uh, was the superintendent of whatever apartment we lived in. Um, my family never owned a home um, and still doesn't. Um, and my and you mother, said you're from Middlesex County, right? I am, yeah. yeah. I'm from Middlesex County. Grew up in Woodbridge. Um, my mother was a retail clerk. And... Yeah. So. So then, where did the law come in? I went to a vocational high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody in my family went to college, and so it wasn't something that I grew up thinking about, or there wasn't a lot of conversation around um, the way that I would encourage my kids to do that sort of thinking. You know, very early on, um, we frequently talk about with about what the what the twins will be when they grow up. One of them wants to be an engineer, the other one wants to be president. Perfect. Um so I'll take both. Yeah. yeah. And and they're both girls, which <laughs> right. is great. That's... An engineer and a president. So it, it's it's great that they have that perspective, but I didn't. Um I just kind of grew up thinking I'd get a job and I'd work and I'd you know do that's what my family is a uh, I would say working poor, maybe kind of clawing their way into the middle class, maybe sort of ish. Um, so I went to a vocational school because that was a, what I saw as a pathway to ending up in a job that I would 
not have to go through an extended period of schooling for. The building that I went to school in was traditionally the girls' botech, whereas, and that was in Woodbridge, and down the street in Perth Amboy was traditionally the boys' botech. But what they did was they set up, if botech, if you don't know how it works, you go to uh, three hours of academic classes in the morning, maybe you have gym and lunch, and then you do what is called shop in the afternoon, where you like learn a trade. Um, but in the building that was historically girls' botech had all the sort of um, stereotypically female courses that you could take as a shop. They had cosmetology and fashion design and baking. Nursing, maybe. Right. Like, yes, yeah. and nursing. <laughs> right. And nursing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, there was another one that I'm forgetting. Um, whereas at the boys' botech... Secretarial stuff. Secretarial yeah, right. stuff, yes. Um, at the boys' botech, they had auto body and welding and wood and all of right. the... Electrical yeah. and plumbing. Correct. And, yeah, right. and so even though... Um, it was no longer officially called boys and girls botech. People still did call it that, call it those things, and it did fall along those lines stereotypically. Um, I, um, not identifying with anything boys botech-ish, uh, went to the girls botech mm-hmm. um, and went was in the program for what was once upon a time called secretarial. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know, uh, you know, there was no one in my family that worked for a lawyer or it was not something I thought of. Um, But because I was in girls' botech doing secretarial school, um, they put you in a job to to try things out. And the job that they stuck me in was filing at a law firm. Oh, okay. And so that was my first introduction to this whole world that I didn't know existed of of people that you know kind of lived a different way you know in socioeconomically like they were just they occupied a different space um and it really opened my eyes to I don't know possibility Mm -hmm. for like the the first time as a you know 15 16 year old um so I thought hey I could be a legal secretary and then it became hey I could be a paralegal right um and at some point you know I I in, during my paralegal career, which was about 10 years long before I went to law school, I thought, hey, I could be a lawyer. I could yeah. do this work. Um, so I had met, um, during that course of paralegaling, uh, two environmental lawyers who just became my mentors. And did um, you work for them? I did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I had started working for PI lawyers and then a real estate lawyer and then somehow landed um, an interview with these two environmental lawyers who had left a larger firm and were starting their own practice mm-hmm. um, 1990, late 1990s. Um, and uh, they were in a way like surrogate parents. You know, really? they kind of te- you know, taking me under their wing, teaching me things yeah. that my parents in their, you know, just not being, not bad people, just being limited in their own um world experience, life experience, that these uh, these two lawyers just took me under their wing and, you know, encouraged me to go to back to go to college. I had taken some classes mm-hmm. at a at County College and uh, so I went to Rutgers at night while I was working for them and uh, then ultimately decided to go to law school. And that's kind of how I ended up in this profession. And you said so they they practice environmental law and they really opened your eyes um to that. So what what was it about the work that they were doing or the cases that you were helping them with that really spoke to you? Yeah, so I started, Was it them or was it the cases? It was a little bit of both. Yeah. I 
I kind of think of myself as a pretty industrious person. I like to get in and get the work done. And they were just starting this business and, you know, just trying to scrape by and make something happen. And I appreciated the energy of all of that. Like yeah. there's the starting of a small business. You know, they've, they're now pretty successful. Um, and to help them build that from the ground up, I felt really excited about um, that was sort of on the more mechanic side of it, but on the um, legal practice side of it, what got me really interested was the work they were doing um, for communities that were afflicted by contaminated drinking water. Mm. And so uh, this is around the time of the Aaron Brockovich movie. Yeah, sure. Um, and so um, I think the issues uh, associated with uh, contaminated drinking water were taking a, you know center stage around that time. And the firm that, that I was with then um, brought the f first um, MTBE-related drinking water cases in the state for communities that um, were um, drinking this chemical that was integrated into gasoline mm -hmm. to higher the um, oxygen content and keep the emissions from, from automobiles uh, from going further up into the atmosphere and creating right. ozone issues. And so... This uh, material, which was a byproduct of the refining process, mm -hmm. um, was thought by the um, fossil fuel industry to be this great thing. And so they found that this oxygen for gasoline um, did have this beneficial effect. They lobbied, they got it, they, they had it uh, um, being a favored, um, le legally a favored way to uh, raise the oxygen content. But this chemical is a carcinogen. And when gasoline tanks leak, as happens when you store things underground, you know, when you go to the gas station and you drive up, it's all in underground tanks. Right. Um, those underground tanks can and do leak uh, with some degree of frequency. And this chemical separates itself from the gasoline and travels further and faster through the ground and through the groundwater and contaminates water sources, um, more so than the, the petroleum compounds that they are bound mm. up with. And so we represented communities that um, were nearby gas, old gas stations that had leaked, that had this stuff, and were feeding it to their children in the form of their, their drinking water when they're right. on potable wells. And a big swath of New Jersey um, still gets, their, it gets its water from um, drinking water wells. And so my job there was sort of like a community organizer. Mm -hmm. And I would uh, hold community meetings, talk to the families, talk to the mothers who are worried about their kids and help them um, help get the information they needed uh, the lawyers to have in order to represent them and to keep the community um, apprised of what was going on in the case. Like you could pursue a litigation for years and years and you know you don't hear on the day-to-day -day what's going on. Um, so I was sort of like a liaison to that community. And so we did a number of cases like this throughout New Jersey. So have Enjoy you it. always worked on the side of, um, you know, of, of communities, those who have been harmed? Have you also represented the companies that yeah, are accused? I, I have been on all sides of the environmental coin. Um, <laughs> and so in prior to law school, I did mostly that kind of work. Mm. Um, but also the firm that I was with did to represent smaller businesses that had uh, environmental compliance obligations, and there are many. There are lots of environmental laws. Yeah, dry cleaners. Laws, I mean, all yeah, sorts dry of cleaners, yeah. gas stations. Um, then when I went to law school, I ended up doing really well and got recruited by various 
large firms and one of the firms that I went to work for, the firm that I ultimately chose to work for because they had a, a place in their environmental department and I didn't want to be in one of these big law firms. They just sort of throw you into a, a pit of lawyers who do any array of things that is not concentrated on a particular field. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, to go, I went to go work at Latham and Watkins, which is a large, you know, two, very large, yeah. 2000 lawyer firm. Um, and my first clients were Dow Chemical and oh. Union Carbide. And if you know anything about the Bhopal, India disaster and uh, the big explosion that happened there. Um, so in that firm, I worked on what were the first, uh, as, a, as a lawyer, the first natural resource damage cases to go to trial in New Jersey. Um, and we won a complete defense victory and essentially and did a... Did a a, what would I, how would I say this to my colleagues now that I work for the <laughs> Department of Environmental Protection? Um, the, the state's program was not well put together and their cases weren't well put together and we uh, dealt a real those. blow yeah. to the state's ability to recover natural resource damages. So um, now, after changing firms, uh, in between, I work for the Department of Environmental Protection and one of my jobs there is to run their affirmative litigation program which involves undoing the successes of my prior work. I got tapped by the incoming commissioner, um, Commissioner McCabe of DEP, to go be chief counsel uh, there. And I uh, did that role for a while. Um, then she asked me to be chief of staff. And so now I help her run the DEP. Right. So, and and so you're you're still in the same wheelhouse, right? You know, I mean, in terms still of... Still environmental, yeah. more policy right. than yeah. legal representation. How do you find that, the policy side of things? You know, I really love it. Yeah. I really do. Um, you know, it's part putting more shape uh, around the governor and the commissioner's policy objectives and um, also running the nuts and bolts of a really large agency. Yeah, very large. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of employees. 28, around 2,800. Yeah. So it's it, the DEP in New Jersey is the state... Um, equivalent of, if you're on the federal level, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Oceanic Administration, the National Marine Fisheries Service, the uh, Department of Interior, all rolled into one on the state basis. So it's like really seven departments in one, which is why we're so large. And so what do you find? So you find that the policy part and putting the sort of the meat on the bones to be really gratifying. Are there challenges that you didn't, um, didn't necessarily see coming? Yes, there's lots of challenges. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Before going into state service, I had a, a perspective that probably a lot of people might, might share that, oh, you know, government uh, work is easier. Government work is, you know, people kind of, you know, maybe they don't put in a full day. Maybe they don't work as hard. Um, and I found the complete opposite to be true. Um, you know, perhaps at the, you know, lower level, the lower staff, I mean, very lower staff levels, um, you, you have folks that are, you know, very much, you know, they're punching the clock and they're leaving. But by and large, I mean, people are just busting their tails to help do the right thing. And there's not, a, there's just not enough of them. Yeah. I mean, DEP at its height was over 5,000 employees. Really? Um, and ever since the, the Whitman administration, it's just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and maybe in some instances for, for good reason. Um, but we've got so many challenges. We've got so many challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, water infrastructure is just one of them. Right. Um, where 
you know, we've got issues with uh, lead piping throughout the state where we've got issues of, of folks in, in communities, particularly underprivileged communities that um, have exposure to, to lead in their drinking water because of aging infrastructure. You yeah, know, it's, it's not, been an issue in the Newark schools. You know. It was an issue in Newark schools, and an issue in Newark, it's an issue in Trenton, it's an issue in um, surrounding towns of, uh, of both of those cities, but it's an issue across the country. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is the age of our bones. It's, it's the age of our bones. America's bones are failing. Right. They're starting to decay. Yeah. I mean, that's just what happens. Yeah. So trying to, to help stop the bleeding and, and put in place you know, policies and protocols that help respond to these things when you have few resources, that is a challenge I did not um, expect to be at quite as intractable mm. as it is. Yeah. That is, I mean, and that would that would keep me up at night, to be honest. It, keep, it, it keeps yeah. me up at night. I bet it does. <laughs> so then, let me ask you this. You are also, this year, the chair of the New Jersey State Bar Association's LGBT rights section. Yes. Right? I yeah. think I have that right. So, good. But so, like, how in God's name do you have time for this? I don't. Yes, right. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. I feel like we I'm always short... We tell the members that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm always shortchanging somebody somewhere. Yeah, I say the um, same thing all the time. Yeah. But, you know, you try to balance things as best you can. Um, and, you know, both at, at, at work, I am fortunate to have a, an incredible staff, um, both, you know, in you know, the folks that directly work with and for me and, and the, you know over almost 3,000 people yeah. that that were responsible for leading. So I'm lucky, I think, um, more than I am burdened. And the same thing is true of the LGBT rights section. I mean, They're we, good people. It, it's an incredible crop of people. Yeah, it is. Um, and we're lucky to keep growing the membership and, and having new talent that wants to step up and, and help lead. Um, and we're really, you know, fortunate to have folks like now Judge Weiss um, in, in Monmouth who started the section. Um, and Tom Prohl, of course. Um, so we're, you know, we're fortunate and we're, I think, in both the, the uh, talent that's come on board and, and for the folks on whose shoulders we stand. How did you get involved with it? I mean, so many of the people I know in the section um, are involved in advocating on behalf of people in the LGBTQ community. Yeah, no, not me. And <laughs> you're not so much, like, not so much, right? You know, yeah, so, but yeah. that, I mean, which is not to say it's not a place for everybody, but I'm just curious how you came to it. Yeah, so most people in the LGBT section, I think, practice uh, in areas of law that affect the, um, that, that affect the community, most notably probably family law, mm-hmm. um, estate planning, things like that. Um, you know, maybe there's gay people who have oil spills and maybe I could have helped them out of the private practice. <laughs> right. um, but that's, I came to it looking for community. Mm-hmm. Um, I came out mid-career. Um, I'm, there's a part of me that always knew I was a gay man, but it took me a long time to come to it um, for lots of different reasons. But um, when I finally found that courage to... Uh, come out in my personal life and then make the step to come out in my professional life, mm-hmm. one of the first places I thought was to you know, reach out to folks that I knew in the section. Um, I think in part because I really knew the Bar Association to be a welcoming and accepting place. And so if, if you're going to take that you know, next step, I, I see it coming out as a never-ending process. Like there's always someone to come out to. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> um, that's exhausting. It was. A, it is exhausting. But yeah. it was a great place. To, it was a great place to do it. And um, 
get introduced to um, a lot of the issues that affect the community, not practicing in those areas, being um, wanting to be attuned to. Um, another uh, reason is that I had a trans cousin um, who was really bullied in school, um, and her experience uh, was motivated me to want to be more engaged in the community after my own coming out yeah. and trying to you know do some uh, work to be supportive of, of the different challenges that the LGBT community still face. So what are your plans for the year? What do you want to focus on? What do you hope that the, you know, as the, the section continues to mature, where its, where its path is headed? So one of the things that I want to focus on this year uh, is to make volunteerism a more of a, an institutional imperative within the section. Um, I am a member of the diversity committee of the bar and have been for a number of years. And there's such great programming that comes out of the diversity committee. Um, the committee has always been, has always spearheaded a lot of volunteerism, and I'd like to see our section kind of do the same, um, but maybe put it a little bit more on steroids. I'd like to see us do work with at-risk youth, um, particularly um, in the trans community because they're some of the most at-risk. Uh, so I am uh, you know, starting uh, with our first initial meeting next month, uh, starting some brainstorming around around that and where we can um, take some volunteering efforts within the section and hopefully open that up to the bar as a whole. Yeah, that's exciting. So in addition to that, I heard you mention um, uh, twins. You are the father of, of twins? Yes, I have eight and a half uh, year old twin girls. All right. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, That must thanks. give you, in addition to work, in addition to the bar, you have your hands very full. Um, yeah, they keep me on my toes, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can imagine. Yeah. So, I, you know, one of the things that I have occasionally talked with women about is family life balance, juggling. Uh, you know, it, it's not a subject always that comes up with men, so this is sort of a special chance I'm going to launch into. So what role... What can men do in the legal profession to sort of get that balance into their lives? Because A whole heck of a lot. Yeah, right. <laughs> a whole heck of a lot. When I was um, first practicing, when I was, at a, um, law, when I was at a law school and working for Latham and Watkins and, working, and just uh, even before that, interviewing at all of these large firms where they, one of their recruitment points was that we have a, a great work-life balance. You know, they, everybody loved to say that. Except one firm, which shall remain nameless, that um, was very honest about how they felt as opposed to sugarcoating it for recruitment. Um, and one of the, uh, on them. the male lawyers, <laughs> um, when I asked about work-life balance, because it wasn't in their brochures, um, told me that the law was a jealous mistress. I didn't take them up on the second interview. <laughs> I was going to say, um, <laughs> didn't go down that path. But um, the the larger firms, in particular, would would tout their their work life balance policies, and and um, the firms that I've worked for um, have touted those policies, and I think they're good and they're important, and they should be they should be touted. But I think what they mean um, is that we have flex time, we have lower hourly. Uh, billable hourly requirements for moms. And if you're a, a woman on, on, a, on a path to partnership in particular, 
you know, we want to make that easy for you. We want to make it easier for you to take leave to, to, and to come back in a, in a reduced capacity and, and continue your career, which I think is amazing. And it, and it is, it, it is and should be a priority, but there is not a corollary story told, um, for men. Um, and I've heard stories of and have experienced myself when trying to ex- when exploring the idea of those reduced work arrangements um the idea being the the sentiment being created that oh for you that might be kind of a career killer mm. like it might show that you're not as you're not invested that you're yeah. not committed um and i think that that's a double standard that does us all a disservice yeah. um as m- because to me, family should be a priority. Um, and I know that the places that I've worked for um, believe that family uh, is a priority. They have that belief. It's in their person. It's in the individual people. It's in the partners that I yeah. uh, worked with. It was in the managing partner partners that I've learned from. It's in their person. But it's not necessarily in their organization's mm. DNA. And I think that's something that we all should work to change. Um, And that we need to talk more about work-life integration as opposed to this amorphous, will I ever have it balance. I don't think that exists. I don't think it does either. And you know, before I uh, went into state service when I was a partner at Gibbons, I um, ended up um, having a really good arrangement because I made it so. Um, Because I knew that people valued my work and that when I needed to cut out at four o'clock, hop on the train, get back to Highland Park here, get and get the kids from school, give them dinner, give them baths, hop back online, finish my work, do do evening conference calls. I, I made all of that work. Yeah. We need, from my perspective, we need to send the message that that's okay, that everyone can do that. Yeah. As opposed to having the perspective that um, I think was, was shared by some of my contemporaries, which there was folks who would, when I was packing up that bag at the end of the day, would say to me, hey, looking at their watches, is it a half day? (sighs) Um, Right. And that, you know, no woman would have ever said that to me. No. She would have known what was going on. And, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to see the timestamp on an email and know that somebody has gone back to work at the end of the end of their family's day. So... I think that it's incumbent upon the, you know, the managing partners and you know, stuff, small uh, firms, large and small, to impress upon the the men in their employ just as as they do the the females in their employ that this is we've all just got to kind of take a different approach to to number one uh, having different standards. Yeah. Um, but in setting up systems that just eschew to a binary, that, that things are one way, are there another? Yeah. That it's okay for a working mother, but not a working father. What about the person who's tending to an ailing parent? Right. Uh, what about the non-binary person who doesn't fit in either of those boxes, whose family structure may be something you'll never understand? Yeah. Um, I think we all owe it to ourselves and to the profession to create an environment where we're able to do our best work because we know that we have the support around, you know, the, the structure that is the rest of our lives. There, there is a, there's a culture, 
right? That that our profession has has fostered. You die at your desk. Yes. You know? You die at your desk. You yeah. work hard, you play hard, you 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 get you get that briefing no matter what it costs you. And yes, we have to meet the court's deadlines. Yes, we have to serve our clients and we should always do our best work. But you're going to do your best work when you are propped up by an an organization and a culture that you feel supports you. There's this theory um that I a management theory uh, that goes something along the lines of when you um, when you take money off the table, when you pay people enough that they feel like they're they're not always thinking about money. Yeah, that that's going to create space for them to uh, be their most creative and to be their most productive and to do to do their their best work. This is this is not a different thing. This is remove some of that burden by professing your flexibility. And you're going to see productivity as a result. Like, we're all human beings. Let's not pretend we're not. Um, and if we break down that culture that had that young associate ask me if I was having a half day um, when I was just going to my next job to then come back <laughs> later in the evening job. and do my other yeah, right. and return to this job, um, just take that off the table. Yeah. You know, And you know what it really is? It's up to people like me who are lucky enough to be in in positions where we can have some measure of of influence over how an organization operates. Right, I was going to say now you get to do this. To send a message. Right, so yeah. for the for folks that have uh, that that report to me, I have a uh, um, the, my director of government relations mm-hmm. for example, he's about to um, become a father. I've in, I encourage him to take a month off. Yeah. Heck, take more. Right. You know, there's nothing that we're no one of us is so irreplaceable. No one of us is so, um, not that we're not special. No. And but, not, not that you're not contributing to a meaningful goal at the end of the day, but like none of, neither of us in this room is curing brain cancer, right? You right. know, I mean, and probably not the people we work with. So it's okay. And if yeah. you're doing your, if you're doing your job as, as a, a manager of a law firm or as, as a, a chief of staff of an agency or whatever it is, if you're doing your job as a leader, you're going to create the atmosphere um, and you're going to create the kind of team that can stand a month departure while a guy takes paternity. You're going to create that because it's in your interest to, because you want to have something that, that is evergreen. Yeah, and that people are vested in coming back to because they feel like they can lead their best version of their life, right? You know, I mean, you want to come back to a place that says, we got you while you do this thing that's important to you. And you're going yeah. to do it when you get, you know, you're really going to be dedicated to that organization at the end of the day. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have ideas or suggestions, please shoot me a line at askthenjsba at njsba.com. And please be sure to check out our social media channels. See you next time. Bye.